Good. Well, thank you for coming. Gosh, I'm a bit overwhelmed by the turnout. Um, you do know you're not going to get the answers. <laughs> I'm not solving it. <laughs> um, okay, well, let, let's start. I thought just really wants to start in the right place. Um, this is a really difficult subject. Um, so what I'd like to do is to, is to sing together, if we could, and uh, it's going to come up on, on the screen in a moment. My able assistant. Yeah. You are going to advance me, aren't you? Right, thank you. Um, and I just thought this was a good one because it addresses some of the things we're going to be grappling with. You know, it talks about light, talks about darkness. Um, there's a lot of darkness, actually, what we're going to be talking about today and, and next time. But it actually positions us in the right place and says, we're here to worship. If our learning isn't worship, then um, I'm going home because that's what it's all about. It's about finding out who God is. It's not coming up to... Uh, to uh, Criticise is coming to sit under under God. So I thought this would be a good place to start to sing this together. Is that okay? So can we stand and sing? Declaration saying, from this point, um, 
we look at these texts from this point, from the point of worship, from the point of saying, you are altogether wonderful, altogether lovely. We remind ourselves that you are the God who sent your son to die on the cross. We want this, this evening to be worship, so will you teach our hearts and help us to glorify you. Amen. Amen. Okay, so thank you for coming. Um, a little bit of orientation about what we're going to do. Um, this week we're going to, to this week we're going to start looking at some of the theological models for what is called harem, and I'll tell you what harem is in a minute. Um, but just to let you know where I'm coming from, um, this is a subject that <clears throat> I became very interested in um, a little while ago, actually, when Claire rang me up and said that somebody in uh, someone that she knew was was struggling with this issue, um, and it it has a real partial significance, I think. I think there are people who really seriously wobble in their faith because of it. And, and did I have any answers, she said, and I didn't have very much to say at all, really. But um, when I then came to choose a subject for my master's dissertation, I thought, this is a good one to look at. So what I'm going to share with you is some of the stuff that I've been learning and um, concluding over the last six months, really. Um, I'm going to share stuff that really cutting-edge theologians are publishing um, which I hope will be helpful. I'm not trying to do anything academic for the sake of it. And then um, towards the end of next week, some, some of my own conclusions and stuff that, that I think, I hope, um, helps a little bit towards understanding this difficult subject. Um, but as I've said repeatedly, I shall say again, I don't have easy answers. You're not going to go away skipping and saying, ah, oh, it's all fine, I understand it completely. Um, well, if you do, then let me know the secret. <laughs> um, so what we're going to look at, start this week and finish next, next time, is um, five theological perspectives on cherem, which I'll define in a minute for you, but you know what the general subject is. And then towards the end of, um, of the second session, we're going to write some, make some sort of synthesis out of them. So you, you, to, for it to make any sense, you're going to need to come to both, or at least to listen to um, the other one on the web. I just want to start by um, telling you what my non-negotiables are. This is my baseline, and I've already hinted at that when we started so my first non-negotiable is God is good and we're not coming I'm not coming and I hope you're not coming to say um, in the face of this total annihilation is God good because that's not the question I'm going to be asking I'm going to be asking the question something along the lines of given that we have these difficult passages how is God good okay and the second, my second um, thing that I'm not negotiating tonight is uh, the whole Bible is God's word to me um, so I'm not coming saying I can choose to reject the parts of scripture that don't suit me. I'm coming saying something along the lines of um, I will place myself under the authority of scripture, aiming to understand it well and allowing scripture to interpret scripture with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and using the resources of good, humble scholarship. Something like that. That's where I'm starting from and I hope that's um, sort of in accordance with I think most of us. Okay, so... Um, Here's, a, here's a, a typical text that we tend to slide over rather quickly when we read them, particularly if we're reading them to children. Um, Joshua overthrew Makeda on that day, and he smote it with the edge of his sword and its king. He utterly destroyed it, and every soul within it, he left no survivors. Typical text. We're all familiar with them, I'm sure. Now, this word, um, utterly destroyed, um, is this word I keep referring to, cherem, and, and I'm going to keep using it because it's, it's just the easiest way to refer to it. So, Harem is this utterly destroy word. It's also called the ban. 
Um, sometimes it's called um, devotion because it's a sense of, well, as we're going to find out, there's a sense of, um, of, of devoting something to whichever God you're doing it for. So it can be translated devote, ban, or sometimes separate as well. But, but I'm going to use the word cherem because that's the word that keeps coming up again and again and again. And what I looked at in my research was cherem itself. I, there's, there's, there's wider passages that look at holy war, and that's a huge thing. I mean, that would be more than a PhD thesis. I chose to look at really at the cherem itself, but I hope that some of the things I can say will provide some keys maybe for us to think a little bit about the whole subject. The word is used 50 times in the Old Testament, um, most frequently when we're talking about the extermination of the Canaanite nations. Um, it's also used for individuals sometimes. It's also used sometimes for um, objects as well. And we'll, we'll have a look at how that's used um, later on. Um, the, there's good evidence, well, there's biblical evidence, that harem was performed by the Israelites on at least 13 occasions. Um, it was also performed, oh, so there are individuals, animals and property. And it wasn't just performed by Israel, and we'll see that as well a bit later on. Now then, there are really two very key texts um, that I'm going to refer to again and again and again. And ideally, I would have got you to read them before you came, um, but I wasn't in church this morning. Anyway, I wouldn't have caught you all. I'm not going to read them because they're long, and you need to read the whole chapter, really. So you might want to go back and read that when you get home tonight, but I'm just going to summarise them so that when I refer to them on a number of occasions this evening, you'll know what I'm talking about. Joshua 7 um, is Achan. Do you remember Achan? The people um, take Jericho and uh, they're told to, take, to, to, to let nothing um, stick to their hands. And then they go on to the next part of the conquest, as they think, and they're absolutely defeated. And they, what's going on, what's going on? And they discover that this chap, Achan, has stolen some of the things that he was not supposed to take. Okay. So some of the objects, which were harem, okay, the people and the things of Jericho, the whole thing was to be consumed by fire. So some of those things which were designated by God as harem, he had taken. Okay. And what happens is, God's anger burns against him, and he says, you're to destroy Achan. And Achan is stoned and then burnt. Okay. So that's a really key passage that we're going to come back to again and again and again, because it un- helps us understand something about what's going on. Well, perhaps it helps us to understand something about what's going on. Okay, and the other really key passage is um, 1 Samuel 15. And this is um, the point at which Saul loses his kingship. And what's happened is, um, Saul says, uh, sorry, God says to Saul, you need to destroy the Amalekites. And Saul goes into battle against the Amalekites. And he's, he's victorious in battle. And, um, and what he does is he nearly destroys them all. But he keeps the best of the cattle. And he keeps the king. And do you remember Samuel has an appointment and he goes and he says to his, the servant says, what's, what's that noise? What's that noise? And he says, it's, it's the sound, I hear the sound of sheep. You know, Saul has, has not done what he said. And he goes and asks Saul and Saul says, oh, I, I kept the best things, you know, I want to sacrifice them to God. And I kept the king. And, and at this point, Samuel says to him, you know, you, you, you've lost it. At this point, I'm, I'm taking the kingdom away from you, says God. So this is a really key point because... Um, the Amalekites were designated by God as Cherem. Okay, they were to be utterly destroyed, and we'll look at why that was um, in, a, in a few minutes. But the point was that Saul didn't utterly destroy them, 
and uh, as a result, his kingship then came to a, a, a conclude. Well, it, the, the kingship, end of his kingship was announced, and from then on, really, he was um, just waiting to uh, waiting to be disposed, as it were, deposed, as it were. Okay, so just hold those two in your mind because we're going to be coming back to those a number of times and, and some other passages as well, but particularly those two. Now, this subject embarrasses us particularly, I think, as 21st century people, particularly today on September the 11th. It's ironical, isn't it? But um, the, the embarrassment about this, these passages and diff- the difficulty with these passages goes right back, and it goes back at least as far as the 2nd century AD. So, what are we doing? So we've got um, a chap called Marcion in the second century. And uh, his attempt to um, get around what was difficult here was to reject the whole Old Testament from the canon and say, this isn't God's word to us. Something completely different going on in the New Testament and that's all we need to pay attention to. Um, About a hundred years later, uh, another well-known chap who I'm sure you've heard of called Oregon, um, he he read those stories as allegorical. He says they're they're telling us something, they didn't really happen, but they're telling us something about God and about victory and, you know, this is how we're to read them. Coming right, I mean, and I'm just, you know, just telling you a few little of the key points, key people. Coming right forwards again, got a chap called Von Rad, very um, influential scholar about 50 years ago. And he, what he said was, um, and, and I think, that he, he is still, there's a lot of credibility to what he says. Um, he says there's a lot of different te- sources going on. When you read the text, you're not reading something that some chap sat down and wrote from beginning to end. You're reading something that someone, at a quite a later date, has compiled from a number of different sources. Okay. And he says, therefore, all this stuff about holy war, it's just a sort of late theological interpretation put on it by the redactor, the final person who, who put them all together. And that was the way he got around them. Um, a chap called Siebert, very recently, um, you know, publishing these days, um, he said, and this is, this is where we start getting into philosophy, and I'm not going to go into this, some of you will be familiar with this, some won't, but he says, when you read a text, and, and this is standard postmodern stuff, when you read a text, all you, all you have access to is the text, okay? And anything you try and read that is behind the text, the story that happened, that caused the writing of the text. That's not quite accessible. All we can really access is the text. And so he says, and that's, that's quite you know, common stuff that we hear a lot, um, but he says, okay, so what we need to distinguish is the textual God and the actual God. Okay, that's his attempt to try and... <laughs> Claire's pulling her face there. I agree with you, Claire. <laughs> um, and finally, Walter Brueggemann of, um, of, of blessed um, renown... Um, he, he wrote this wonderful book, and I th- well, I thought it was going to be wonderful, and I read it with eagerness. And uh, he said he was going to deal with one of the hard texts, which is about Cherem. I thought, yes, he's got something to say. And it's, you know, not a huge book, but substantial. And I thought, yes. And what he's done is he's chosen one of the really easy ones. And he's chosen one of the ones where um, there's a lot about hamstringing of horses, which is to do with um, the poor oppressed people, um, you know, striking empire, striking the imperial might. Um, and he says, this is all about peasant texts. It's an anti-imperial thing, peasant texts. And it's about God being on the side of the poor, on the side of the underdog, which is lovely for the text he chose. But we can't make it fit, or a lot of the other ones. Um, because a lot of the time, Israel was, was on a par with, with the nations, that in terms of, in terms of you know, um, military might and so on, with the nations that they were destroying. So these are some of the apologetic attempts None of them makes me happy. None of them satisfies me. And I think the very fact that we've got so many 
attempt tells us something about that we haven't solved this yet. Um, okay. So here's, here's, this is um, my idea of what the apologetic attempt is like. This is this chap running away from his wife. He says, I, I didn't know the woman you're talking about. And I didn't know she was married. And I wasn't there at the time. And I was only taking spinach off her teeth. Because actually, when you start layering excuse upon excuse upon excuse, they sort of um, negate each other, don't they? <laughs> and I think that there's something, actually, about what's going on when we try and put our apologies forwards for, for Jerem. Um, it's the same. We say something like this, and, and this is a, a sort of, um, this is a sort of um, compilation of a lot of stuff that's being published nowadays. People are trying to tackle this. They say, it probably didn't really happen. And if it didn't happen, it wasn't really as bad as all that, as, as the Bible makes out. And if it really was as bad as all that, well, all the other nations around were just doing the same thing anyway. In fact, Israel was, was better than the other nations because they weren't maiming and dismembering. But they sort of negate each other, don't they? And I don't know about you, but I'm not convinced that really solves the problem. Um, and even, to my mind, even if these texts are fictional... They still are saying something about God that we need to grapple with. Now, I don't think they are fictional myself, but you know, I, I'm not sure we can even take comfort in saying it didn't really happen. Because those texts are in the Bible for a reason. Um, we can't just say, oh, you know, we need to grapple with why they're there, what they're doing, in my opinion. Am I making sense so far? Have I lost anyone yet? Okay, good. So, what I'm going to do over the rest of this evening and the first part of the next evening is look at five different, five different um, theologians' attempts to understand theologically what's going on in these total annihilation passages. Um, some are older and some are more modern. Um, and I'll say at the outset that um, this is roughly chronological. Well, I guess the, the last few are, are, are sort of contemporary. They're not, none of them is really saying this is the only understanding of Harem and all the others are wrong. But people are saying, um, here's, another, here's another possibility, possible way of understanding it. Maybe it enriches our understanding. And perhaps that will become clear as we go. So, we're going to start off. We're going to do the first three tonight, okay, if we get through it. We're going to start off with a, a well-known chap, Jean Calvin, who um, felt, I think, very much as we do, that these are very difficult passages to grapple with. Um, and came with a deep commitment and a deep conviction to trying to solve this, probably came with um, less discomfort and unease than we do, um, because things were more bloody in those days, perhaps, or more socially acceptably bloody. Um, but nonetheless, he's coming with a, a, very, um, a lot of integrity to the Bible to try and sort this out. And he sees Harem as judgment upon the nations. Okay. And he says this. He says, God had not only armed the Jews to carry on war with them, but had appointed them to be the ministers and executioners of his vengeance. And um, I don't think we can get away from this one. I'm not, I think there's more to it than this, but I don't think we can get away from it. I think the text tells us again and again and again that this is something that is going on. Could somebody look up Deuteronomy 7 for me, please? Claire, will you? Thank you. And someone else look up the, the, the passage I referred to earlier, 1 Samuel 15. Just 
One second. And then if you keep your finger in, one, in Deuteronomy 7, because we're going to refer to it again in a minute, that would be great. Okay. Can you... Um... When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebunites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Thank you. So, so what we see in that, I think, um, lots of things, but one of the things I think we see there is that this is about ethical purity um, and that if you do not destroy these nations, they will lead you astray. Um, and so there's something of judgment in that. I think the judgment comes out even more clearly in the passage. I'm going to get David to read this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Thank you, Phil. So there I think the punishment aspect is even more explicit. Um, Like it or not, I think it's in the text. Um, And just I want you to just notice that the idea here is that what you are cheremming, what you are devoting or banning, whichever word you like to use, is an abomination. It is something that is, that is unholy, that is unclean, and needs to be destroyed. Okay. Just hold that in your mind, because um, there's more to say on that. Okay. Um, so Calvin would say, um, and, and others after him, this is, he's not alone here, he's in a, a rich strand of people who would say this is, a, this is how you understand Cherem. He would say that the Amalekites are a special case. Um, and I'll read you... Um, This isn't what you just read to me, Phil, is it? This is a similar place. He says this. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and struck down all who lagged behind you. He did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies on every hand, in the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So... Amalek, or the Amalekites, um, are a particular case. Um, Cherem is, is ordered in, for a number of nations, but God makes a particular, or the, the text makes a particular point about Amalek. Amalek attacked Israel um, from behind, attacked the weak, attacked the stragglers, um, and God says there will be judgment as a result of this. Now, do you remember 1 Samuel 15 we talked about about 10 minutes ago? Okay, well, who was it that Saul was supposed to be annihilating? It was Amalek. It was the Amalekites, all right? And if you look, you don't need to turn now, but if you look at the very end, the last chapter, I think it is the penultimate chapter of 1 Samuel, um, you've got David doing war on the Amalekites. And the very first words of, of, of 2 Samuel are something along the lines of, when David had finished annihilating the Amalekites. Okay. So what's going on here, 
according to Calvin and, and many others in his, in his strand, they would say the Amalekites are the archetypal enemies of God. Okay, because of what they did and the way that they are, are referred to again and again and again, in a way that the other nations aren't, um, the Amalekites are the archetypal enemies of God. Saul, that the, and the responsibility of the anointed one, is to destroy the enemies of God. Saul is given that charge and fails to discharge his responsibility. David, of course, who we, well, David, um, apparently completely discharges that responsibility. So what Calvin and his successors would say is the Amalekites are, as I say, the archetypal enemy of God and Jesus, and David is a picture of Jesus. And one of the ways that David is a picture of Jesus is in this absolute destruction of these archetypal enemies of God. Okay. Just hold that. I'm not saying either way what I think. Well, I will actually. I think it's part of the story. I think all of these things are part of the story. But we'll, we'll sort of try and synthesize them towards the end of next time. Just hold on to that for now. Calvin clearly felt, and, and his successors clearly felt, that, um, that this was still uncomfortable. And there, was, there were things that still needed to be said. So he's, he's gone further, and he's tried to do what's called a theodicy. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Theodicy is basically saying, um, I'll defend God. Okay, and he's trying to defend God from the charge of injustice. And he says a number of things. First of all, he says um, that this total annihilation is a reminder of the way that God has impartially chosen Israel. And Claire, could you just read chapter, verse 6 of what you read just now? So if you remember, what Claire just read to us was the command, when you go into the land and you see these nations, um, you will totally destroy them. And then, verse 6... For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure possession. And sorry, could you read the next verse as well? The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, King of Egypt. Thank you. So Calvin would say there is something here about um, that is showing that God impartially chooses and he's not, he's not biased. Um, he, he chose to love Israel and, and that this annihilation is... It's a sign of the fact that he's not partial, I think. I, yeah, I know. I, I'll leave that one there. Um, you can look at the passage yourself if you want to when you get home. But um, the Amalekites were not destroyed until many generations after they had originally attacked Israel. Um, there's also this, this little bit in Genesis where Abraham is told, your, peop- your, your descendants will go down to Egypt, then they will come up, but not yet because the, um, the sins of the people in the land have not yet mounted to fulfilment. And so Calvin and his successors would say there's something here about God's, about God's forbearance, actually, and we need to spot that. It's not just God coming down with a, with, with a stern hand when somebody um, puts a toe out of line, that actually God has held off and held off and held off and held off with these nations until he can turn a blind eye no longer. Um, Calvin would also, of course, say, along with Paul, 
Um, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, actually, there are no innocents. Um, And a more recent writer along the same sort of strand would say, um, this chap called um, Merrill, he says, um, the actions of Israel are unique. Um, It's a divinely sanctioned genocide, which has never happened before and never since. In fact, I think I've got a quote here. He says, The issue cannot be whether or not genocide is intrinsically good or evil. It's sanctioned by a holy God settles that question. Which I don't think makes any of us feel any better. (laughs) It doesn't make me feel any better. But but that is an important theological understanding of Cherem. And I think we need to to be true to the text. We need to see that there is something about judgment in all that. Is that all right? You may not be comfortable, but does it make sense? Yeah. I'm wondering whether something like the phrase inconvenient truth is in all this, because presumably when you say the word genocide, some people say genocide is bad because just picking on people for just because you happen to think you don't like your neighbour is one thing. But if you've got a moral imperative from your God to, to strike someone who happens to be your neighbour and happens to be a different race or different colour that's a different matter altogether these issues are in the balance absolutely, yes and I think there is something about um, and we'll touch on this in a minute but I think there is something about um, impartiality in it which is horrible but actually completely impartial yeah when you punish your child you're, you're doing so because it's a consequence but it doesn't have necessarily much personal animosity yes because you do it for educational reasons yes 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 I think that's, that's right never was Israel told you may go on the rampage you know just do what you fancy kill who you like take what you like um, there is something forensic about it certainly like it or not, I think there is something forensic about it. Okay, we're going to look at a different model of Cherem now, a much more modern, a lady called Susan Nidditch, who is still alive, and there's a picture of her, sort of. Um, and she says, now, what I don't want you to come away is thinking that she says Cherem is all about sacrifice and about nothing else. Um, she, the first chapter of her book, as far as I recall, um, talks about Cherem as judgment, and she says very clearly, this is clearly the major strand, which is in the Old Testament, but I think there's something else to say. And I'm going to pick up what she says that's novel rather than what she says that rehashes um, what we've already heard. Um, now, human sacrifice occurs a number of places in the Old Testament if you have a, have a good look and a good think. Um, do you remember the story of Jephthah's daughter? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll remind ourselves of that one in a minute. Um, in 2 Kings 3, we've got the king of Moab um, gaining, battle, gaining victory in battle by sacrificing his son on the walls of his city. Um, do you remember the bit in 1 Kings 16 which says, at the cost of his youngest son, he reset the gates of Jerusalem, or reset the foundations of, of Jericho, and at the cost of his second son, he, you know, there's, there's, there's a strong suspicion there that he sacrificed his children as he rebuilt Jericho. Um, 
Well, it's, the, we're not, it's not clear, but the strong suspicion is that he probably sacrificed them. Yes. And the curse was that, you would, that at the cost of your children you would rebuild it. Yes. So you can read that text more than one way, and it could be just that the curse was fulfilled and his children died, but, but there is, there's quite strong evidence or strong suggestion that he actually rebuilt Jericho with the bones of his children in the foundations. Um, there's also, I don't know if you remember, a fairly obscure bit, but a couple of Saul's sons are claimed by um, one of the Gibeonites and, uh, and they are impaled and left on the hillside and their mother uh, mourns for them for 40 days. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Um, and the near sacrifice of Isaac is quite an ambiguous story because we, what, what the, the writer doesn't do is say, and therefore, this is why we don't sacrifice humans. You know, it doesn't say that. And so it's, it's one of these slightly uncomfortable, ambiguous stories, even though, in the end, you know, it all comes out okay. Um, so, next slide, please, Louisa. Um, so what, so what um, Susan Niditch says is, first of all, she says there is, there is evidence that in the biblical, the ancient biblical mindset and in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, in other words, in the nations around, that these people were, um, were okay with the idea that God liked blood. Okay, they were quite, quite comfortable with that. And um, she, she produced lots of evidence. I've just chosen a couple here. And here's one from Ezekiel, both of the prophets. Here's one from Ezekiel, which says this. As for you, mortal... Thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every kind and to all the wild animals. Assemble and come, gather from all around the sacrificial feast I'm preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of goats, of bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat until you are filled and drink blood until you are drunk. At the sacrificial feast I am preparing for you. And then uh, the Isaiah passage, which is much longer, really, than the bit I've chosen, but it says this. When my sword, this is God speaking through Isaiah, when my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, lo, it will descend upon Edom, upon the people, I've doomed, upon the people I've doomed to judgment. The Lord has a sword, it is sated with blood, it is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. Um, and she looks at other passages in the Old Testament and other passages in um, writings from around the same time, what we call other ancient Near Eastern writings, particularly some Babylonian ones. And she says, deep in the mythological framework of these people is the idea that the gods, including Yahweh, um, liked blood. And they were pleased with blood and fat and all of that sort of stuff. Okay, hold that thought. That's one of her pillars, as it were, of of putting this case together. Now, the next thing we're going to go to is something really interesting called the mesh of steel. Now, this is a lovely little stone, see there, um, which is written, if I remember rightly, in cuneiform, um, which I don't speak fluently. Um, But actually, you have got a translation of it, if you're interested, on your stapled sheet, on the back of your stapled sheet, um, which we won't go through now. But um, what it is, is this chap, um, a Moabite, and he's, he's describing how he committed harem upon the people of Israel, which is really interesting because we don't have any record of that in the Old Testament. And in fact, the Moabites were exempt from harem by Israel. The Moabites were, were kin, really, and, and they were exempt. But this, is, this chap is, is, is boasting about he, how he was told by his God 
to uh, go forth and attack Israel, this, ta- this town of Israel anyway, and, and he performed harem upon it. Okay, so she, she's examined this stone, and, and lots of people are very interested in this stone, and we'll come back to it again, um, either to, I think either next week or later on today, um, looking at it another way. But she looks at this and says, what this is, this is a war vow. And this idea that, you know, my God told me to do it, and I, 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 you know, I, I was victorious, and I sacrificed all these people to, to my God. Um, there's, a, there's a little... Um, I don't think I've written it down. Oh, yes, I have. Numbers 21. Here we are. Um, Israel swore a vow to the Lord, saying, If you will surely give this people into my hand, I will perform harem upon their cities. And Jephthah, back to Jephthah and his daughter. We know what Jephthah did, don't we? Jephthah said, if you will give me victory in this battle, then the first thing that comes out from my house, I will sacrifice to you. Okay. So what Lidditch is saying is she's saying there is good evidence, both in other um, cultures around and in the Old Testament itself, that people saw this harem as a sacrifice in in, in, in thanksgiving for victory. So it was, uh, it, it, you know, if you give me victory, I will, rewar- I will, I will um, thank you by, by doing this. Okay. <laughs> don't know. It's a pretty risky thing to do. I think, I think that's a bit kind. But don't really expect it. That's what Bailey says in his commentary. I have Middle East context. How to read the scripture in the Middle East. He wasn't expecting it. Where the house was constructed maybe I think we're a bit kind he went through with it didn't he <laughs> ok there's also an idea that um, still thinking about whether this is sacrifice or not that harem can be a sort of substitution um, now if we go to 1 Kings 20 I'll, I'll flick quickly you don't need to uh, all go there um, in 1 Kings 20, we've got a, a, a situation rather similar to the Saul situation that we looked at in, in uh, 1 Samuel just now. And what happens is you've got um, the King Ahab, who is supposed to destroy um, Ben-Hadad and, and, his, and his lot. Um, and he doesn't. And, uh, and a prophet comes to him, an unnamed prophet, if I remember rightly, comes to him and says... Um, and says, you, you failed to do what you were supposed to do. You failed to kill this, this king that you were supposed to kill. Therefore, it will be your life for his life and your people for his people. And based on... Oh, in fact, I've, I've got it there, haven't I? I didn't need to paraphrase it. Thus says the Lord, because you have let the man go whom I had devoted to destruction, whom I had designated as harem, yeah, therefore your life for his life, your people for his people. And so Nidditch says there's something here about substitution. Of course, we all know that sacrifice is, in in many instances, is a substitutionary sort of thing. Okay, so that's the third sort of pillar of what she's putting together. And then the the, the fourth one, which I find quite convincing, I must say, is the association of Harem with um, the whole burnt offering. Now, you'll remember that Israel had all sorts of sacrifices that they used to offer. But one in particular was called Khalil, and it was, it was the holocaust, which means everything was burnt. Okay, it's all holocaust means. Everything was burnt. Um, and if you look at the second one I've put there, this is the Leviticus instruction. Okay, um, and this is about a grain offering. And it says, And so the priest, anointed from among Aaron's descendants as a successor, shall prepare it. 
It is the Lord's a perpetual dew to be turned entirely into smoke. Every grain of offering of a priest shall be wholly burned, Khalil, it shall not be eaten. Okay? Now bear that in mind. And now listen to Deuteronomy 13. So that was Leviticus, which I probably should have put first. So that's the background, if you like. That's the sort of sacrificial background. Now have that in your mind and listen to Deuteronomy 13. You shall put the inhabitants of that town to the sword, utterly destroying it and everything in it, even putting its livestock to the sword. All of its spoil you shall gather into its public square, then burn the town and all its spoil with fire as a khalil, a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. So here we've got a very close association of harem and khalil. Okay? But there's more, I think. Um, the association of harem and fire is quite clo- clearly um, attested in a lot of other writings outside the Bible, but also in the Bible itself. And if we just go on to the next slide. Um, okay, I'll just summarise these. Deuteronomy 7. Um, you, must, you must utterly destroy them, make no covenant with them. This is what we just heard. Show them no mercy. Dot, dot, dot. Hew down their sacred poles and burn their idols with fire. Okay, Cherem being conducted at least partly with fire. Joshua 6, this is Jericho, isn't it? They burned down the city and everything in it. And this city had been designated as Cherem. They burned it down. Joshua 7. Um, and the one who is taken, this is for Achan, the one who is taken as having the devoted things shall be burned with fire. Okay. So th- th- there, is a, there is an association between Cherem and fire, and in fact, in, with with the whole burnt offering. Right. Put those together. Oh, hang on. There's one more. Next slide, please, Louisa. Um, and her sort of her final plank of her argument, if you like, goes back to 1 Samuel 15. Remember where we've got um, Saul has failed to kill Agag, king of the Amalekites. Um, do you remember what happened to Agag? Agag. Samuel takes matters into his own hands and kills him. But it's very interesting the language that we've got here. And it says in, um, in our English, a lot of our English translations says something like this. Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, we read that, and say, but actually, there's a lot of um, what I may, what might call cultic language there. In other words, language to do with um, the sort of temple sacrifice or the, the tabernacle sacrifice. This word hewed. In the uh, in the oh, get a bit technical now, but in the Hebrew, that is the only time that word is ever used in the Old Testament. But the way the uh, the, the people who translated into Greek put it in the LXX for those who are interested, they chose a word that was a sacrificial word. They clearly understood this as a sacrificial imagery that was going on. And Gilgal, you may know, was an important cultic centre in ancient Israel. So what you've got here is quite a strong suspicion that what Samuel is doing is not just taking matters into his own hands, although I think he is, but that he's doing something that he sees as a sacrificial, um, sacrificial business. And we've got sacrificial language going on here. So, if we sum all those up, just remind you, the idea, first of all, Nidic says, sacrifice, human sacrifice, is quite a plausible idea to the ancient Near Eastern mind. And the idea that God likes blood that's okay with the people who wrote this sort of thing, okay? Number two, the war vow, the association of the war vow, you know, if you give me victory, I will perform cherem. Um, the idea of substitution, 
I think that's, I'm not convinced that's a very strong argument actually, but the idea of substitution, the Khalil and Fire Associations I think is very convincing. Well, my, my opinion, quite convincing. A lot of stuff about, you know, that, that links this idea of harem and sacrifice. And finally, the cultic slaying of Agag. And piecing all of that together, Susan Niditch says, another way of understanding harem is as sacrifice. Not just judgment, although certainly that, she would say, but there is also something of sacrifice in this. And we need to hold that in your minds, because that's going to be part of what we're going to try and synthesise at the end. But just one thing to flag up. What was the devoted thing when we had judgment? What was it? It was an abomination. If it's sacrifice, what is it? It's most holy. It is something that is, what do you sacrifice? You sacrifice what is most valuable. And you may not sacrifice something that is deficient. Okay. Hold that in your mind. Just one other comment. Are these two things mutually exclusive or not? And I know that's, we're going to continue to add to that question as we look at some more models. The, the, when the is the object is when when yes, that's right. So and, and so is this are these two ideas completely incompatible? A lot you could say about that. But if you just think back to that story of once in, in one Samuel that you somebody read well I just talked about, didn't I? Um, that story in one Samuel. What is Agag the king? He is most culpable because he's the king, and he is most valuable because he's the king. I'll leave that thought with you. Okay, that's number two. Are you you're hanging on in there? Just about was that. <laughs> okay, I think this is this this will make you feel more comfortable, <laughs> possibly. Okay, chat called Philip Stern, who is I, I think a Jewish um, theologian. There he is, and he says Cherem um, is creating order out of chaos. And uh, I think this is really interesting. Um, now, he, a background to this is there's a, an anthropologist called um, Mircea Iliadi. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's what it looks like. Um, and he has studied a lot of primitive cultures. And Iliadi reckons that whenever a people settle a territory, whether they are, you know, Inuit or American Indians or whatever, whoever they are, whenever people settle a new territory... Um, there, is, there is for them a sense that they are repeating the sort of primordial act of creation. That um, the, the rituals they go through, the, the, the way they conduct themselves, the prayers they say, whatever they do, there is something about this is a new creation we are, that we are, we are you know, after the gods or God or whatever they believe in. We are now creating something new. Okay. Um, right. We're going to go back to the mesh of steel. Remember the mesh of steel? Well, Philip Stern's very, very interested in the mesh of steel. And he says, um, he points out that there is a repeated word, um, banar, in the mesh of steel. And if you have a look, banar means to build. And if you have a look at your translation, I can't actually remember if it's always translated build in there, but hopefully you'll see that what happens is this king says, I went and I, you know, I, I took the victory over this town. I performed harem upon them. And then I built this, and I built that, and I built the other, and I did all this amazing building. Okay. So what Philip Stern says is going on 
he says that this settling and this building is, if you like, an act of creation. And that the cherem was a, a necessary clearing of the ground in order that this act of creation could take place. Is there any implication that for a human to go through an act of creation could actually be seen as a pentacle? No. It would be, um, they talk about sympathetic magic where you're, you're sort of reproducing something that is, you're, you're doing something which is having its, ec- yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, um, foregoing the desire for plunder, and of course that's what's going on in Cherem, is you are, you are not cho- you're choosing not to spoil the city and take what you fancy. You're choosing to, to burn it or destroy it. Foregoing the desire for plunder, the Moabites, who are written about here, are satisfying a deeper need to bring an end to the cosmic disruption they experienced under the oppression of Israel. Um, and he's looked at a number of places where this word banar is very clearly associated with the idea of, of creation. Um, there's, there's a number of other words in there as well. Um, garash, which is to expel. My um, And these other words here, which are all to do with expelling, with slaying, with, with, with taking the place for yourself and clearing the ground so that you can do your banaring, you can do your building and you do your creative event in it. Okay, let's, let's move on. Am I sort of, have I lost anyone yet? Yes? No? Okay. <laughs> right, okay, let's go to something we know a bit more about than the mesh of steel. Let's go to Jericho. Now, Jericho, what do they do? They walk on the city. Day one. Day two, they walk around the city. How many days do they walk around the city? Six first, and then the seventh, something different happens. Yeah? And he says there's, there's really strong echoes of Genesis 1 in Jericho. So what he's suggesting then is that um, you've got this creation event which involves Cherem. Yes, that they are, they are in a sense repeating the action of God in, in Genesis 1. They are, you know, they're doing this sort of seven day thing. On the seventh day, Cherem and something is built out of it, something new. The ground is cleared. They've done this act of settling, this act of creation. But Cherem is, is, is an integral part to all of that that's going on. Does that make sense? Um, and there's, again, he's, he's found a lot of other parallels in, in other ancient Near Eastern literature which would uh, support that. Um, Ugaritic literature, the, uh, the, the, the uh, creation of Baal's house. Baal, you know Baal? Um, that was, his house in Ugaritic literature was, was created with six days of fire followed by a seventh day of cooling. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's this whole idea of, of six days and then a special seventh day. But what's happening then is after that event of creation, which we might imagine Jericho to be, we've got someone coming in and messing it up. Yeah? Who's Achan? So what he starts to say is what, what we need to see is that, and, and of course remember that Achan suffered Cherem, okay? So when he says what we're seeing is we're seeing the role of the serpent, the role of that primordial tempter, that primordial beast, um, coming back in Achan, okay, because he's the one who messes up this lovely new creation that's happened through the, through the destruction of Jericho. And, and this is where it gets even more clever, 
the Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites? Yep. And he says, not only the Amalekites archetypal evil, but they are the archetypal chaos monster. Now, if you know, I think we talked about this a little bit, those of you who did Job, this idea of this chaos monster that is um, creation comes out of slaying the chaos monster in, in a lot of these ancient Near Eastern texts. You know, the, the Babylonians, you've got um, Gilgamesh who slays the chaos monster and, and creates the heavens and the earth out of the bits of her body, you know, and, and so on. And Isaiah here. Um, so what we're looking at here is we're looking at the fact that, well, let's just read it. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab the chaos monster in pieces, who pierced the dragon, the chaos monster? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over? So here we have got the slaying of the chaos monster and creation linked with the exodus, with the Red Sea. Okay, and that's quite a strong theme, which I'm not going to have time to prove to you, but that's quite a strong theme, that the, making the way through the Red Sea is a new creative act. Okay, now, if making your way through the Red Sea is a new creative act, what are you going to make of the guys who come and attack you as soon as you're across? The Amalekites. Well, they're like Achan, aren't they? Yeah, they are... Sorry? They... They're the spoilers, that's right, absolutely. And he says, and I think this is really funny, but he says, look, if you look at this Deuteronomy text, he said, and I've taken this from the ESV because it brings it out um, a little bit from what it's got in the Hebrew. Remember what Amalek did to you as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and he cut off your tail. And he says, and this idea of tail is deliberately reminding us of Amalek as the chaos monster with this, with this tail that we read about in Job, don't we? He's lashing his tail and so on. So he's saying we're deliberately being reminded. Amalek, the chaos monster. You know, Achan, the spoiler. And that Cherem is a clearing of the ground so that creation can take, event, take, take place. Cherem, as you settle, is, is as you repeat that... Um, as you reenact the creative events of Genesis 1, that Cherem is a necessary part of slaying the chaos monster in order to clear the ground. We're nearly there. So that's in summary, just to summarise the, the three parts of his argument, really. The creative creation building language in the Mesh of Steel, which talks explicitly about, um, about Cherem. The creative echoes in Jericho and Achan, um, and Achan threatening creation. And the creative echoes in the Exodus, and therefore the identification of the Amalekites as the chaos monster. That's a third way of viewing Cherem. So let me just briefly remind you where we've been today. Cherem as judgment upon the unholy nations around, God's judgment. Cherem as sacrifice unto the Lord. And Cherem as a creative act of slaying the chaos monster and settling. Okay, and I'm going to leave you with no answers at all, as I said I would not to do. Um, next week, rather than in a fortnight's time, um, we will look at the last two there, a um, little bit about René Girard, who you may know something about, and someone I'm sure you haven't heard of because this was a, a fairly recently published PhD thesis called Hyundai Park. And we'll look at his under- their understandings of Cherem or what they can contribute to it And hopefully, in the second half of it, we'll try and put it together and we'll think about the cross. And we may make a little bit of ground. (laughs) 
So a fortnight today at 6.30, if you care to come back. Thank you. And we'll soon... Would somebody like to pray to send us out on a more uplifting note? Phil, do you want to pray for us? Father, um, we just know your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and you're always higher than our ways. We pray that we can't think of what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. We may see about, um, you know, maybe looking in our lives and maybe trying to slay things that shouldn't be there and actually you know having that act of new creation allowing you to rebuild in our own lives I just pray that um, this will somehow draw us closer to you and understanding more about your judgment your um, sacrifice and, and actually how important the cross of Jesus is uh, where that was all finalised and we thank you for Helen's um, work in kind of investigating this. And um, just help us to know more about you as we cheer on this over the next Amen. Thank you. If anyone wants to ask me questions, do. If I've upset anyone or unsettled anyone, and this is a really you know, sticky, difficult subject, don't go away and fret about it or you know go and say well just come and talk to me or someone else that you trust yes it is and it's, it's, it's also in the same way just Harim as well. The idea of something that is set apart and forbidden. Yes. But then from what you tell you said about Karen, that gives a much stronger meaning to Haram. It's not just forbidden, it implies it should be destroyed. Well, I, I, just, the, the word has a similar root, it's not exactly the same and I would but yes, I, I can bring that information next time if you like. There's a number of words that are all linked. Uh, I haven't got it with me, but, um, but interestingly, yes, even as far as, as Kareem is, is, is linked as well. Yeah. We'll talk about that next week. Um, no, no. <laughs> Not explicitly, but but there are some echoes we can pick up. We've used the term genocide since six million Jews. Can anybody discuss actually the number of people who were involved in ancient days? I mean, because cities were quite small. Yes. So the number of people compared to the six million Jews must be quite. Much smaller. much smaller numbers but I haven't seen a discussion of the actual figures no